this is on these two passages deal with on not confusing levels of right view. The first one, uh, a wanderer from another sect has come in to see him, talking to a young monk, Samiti, who's been a monk for only about three years. This is why you shouldn't have three-year-old monks <laughs> teaching the Dharma. So the wonder says, having intentionally done an action with body, with speech, or with mind, what does one experience? And Samiti says, having done, intentionally done an action with body, speech, or with mind, one experiences stress. The wanderer neither delighted nor scorned the words, neither delighted nor scorned, he got up from his seat and left. So Samiti goes to see Ananda, tells what happened, and Ananda says, this is time to see the Buddha. So they go and see the Buddha and they report their conversation. And <clears throat> top of page five, when this was said, the Blessed One said, I do not recall ever having seen Potapale the Wonder, much less having that sort of discussion. And his question, which deserved an analytical answer, has been given a categorical answer by this worthless man, Samiti. Um, that's, that's the word moka, bodhisattva, really means a, a zero person, <laughs> a person of no use. Pretty strong term. Um, you remember the Buddha had four ways of answering questions. There was the categorical answer, which was just basically straight yes, no, across the board. An analytical answer was saying, well, the question needs to be reformulated. You know, what are, specifically what circumstances are we talking about, and then we can answer the question. The third technique was to cross-question the person first, either to get to see what the person meant by his question or to kind of clear up the issue maybe to use an analogy to help the person get prepared for the answer that's going to come. And then the fourth approach was not to answer the question at all. And so this case, the Buddha says, okay, it required an analytical answer. And when this was said, Udayan, who always likes to butt in, says, but what if Venerable Samiti was speaking in reference to this? Whatever is felt comes under stress. And that's you know, the, a teaching that's appropriate for the higher levels of right view. And when this was said, the Blessed One said to Venerable Nanda, Look, Ananda, at how this worthless Hidayan, another worthless person, interrupts. I knew just now that he would interrupt in an inappropriate way. From the very beginning, Potalati Buddha, the wanderer, was asking about the three kinds of fe feeling. When this worthless Samiti was asked by him in this way, he should have answered, Having intentionally done with body, speech, or of mind, an action that is to be felt as pleasure, one experiences pleasure. This is the analysis. What kind of action is it? If it was done, that was to be done an action that was to be felt or experienced as pain, one experiences pain, having intentionally done with body, speech, or mind, an action that is to be felt as neither pleasure nor pain, one experiences neither pleasure nor pain. Answering this way, this worthless Samiti would have rightly answered Potapali the Wanderer. So Udayan's solution there is actually mixing up the levels of right view. We're talking on the level of karma, and he's trying to pull in a teaching that's appropriate for a higher level of right view, which is not appropriate for that time. If you tell your little kids, now whatever you do, you're going to experience stress, that's not going to help the kids at all. They're not going to be able to figure out okay, what's a skillful action, what's an unskillful action, how do I figure this out? When you're dealing on that level of right view, you have to say, okay, there is, there is a pleasure that comes from acting skillfully. The Buddha never denies that there are pleasures to be attained from the aggregates. The question is, as we'll be getting into later this afternoon, is when is it worth it? And on this level, it's worth it. As you're trying to develop an understanding of what's skillful and what's not, you have to see that the pleasure that comes from skillful action is worth the effort. So you have to make that distinction. And then finally, the last one. Excuse me, there are two more. This is the image of the, of the raft. It comes to a Great expanse of water, the near shore, dubious and risky, the further shore, secure and free from risk, but with neither ferry boat nor bridge going from this shore to the other. So the man asked himself, what if I were to gather grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, were to cross over to safety on the other shore, in dependence on the raft, making an effort with hands and feet? Okay, he's basically using the raft and he's paddling himself across. He's got to hold on to the raft while he's paddling across. Then you get to the other side, then you let it go. So don't let go of everything right off the bat. And the reason for all this is explained in that last passage of this section. Among whatever dharmas there may be, fabricated or unfabricated, the dharma of dispassion, the subduing of intoxication, the elimination of thirst, 
the uprooting of attachment, the breaking of the round, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, the realization of unbinding, is considered supreme. Of all dharmas, whether fabricated or not, that dispassion is supreme. Those who have confidence in the dharma, dispassion have confidence in what is supreme. And for those with confidence in supreme, supreme is the result. Then he goes on to say, among whatever fabricated dharmas there may be, the Noble Eightfold Path is supreme. Okay, you're doing, using something fabricated to get to something unfabricated. And this is where you have to think strategically. You can't use the unfa unfabricated to get to the unfabricated, because the unfabricated cannot be used. It doesn't have an atta. It doesn't have a goal. It is the goal. It's like that spot in the, in the highest part of the, the ice cap on Antarctica. You know, all the horrible winds they have on the coastline in Antarctica. You get higher and higher up onto the, the, the ice plateau. You get to the very highest spot, there is no wind at all. All the winds come from there, but there's no wind at that spot. And so in the same way, you get to the, you get to the goal. That goal does not have a purpose. You can't use it for anything. So you have to use something that's fabricated to get there, and that's why you have to think strategically. Use fabrication like the raft, and then when you get to there, you have to let go of the raft to get to the other side. So don't confuse levels of right view saying, I, I'm gonna, I let go, I let go, I let go. Yes? Uh, this makes me think of um, all the times I've heard, you don't try and choose wisdom, you use, you use wisdom. Mm -hmm. Okay, the wisdom is the means, it's part of the path. Right view is not the goal. And sometimes you will hear this said, that the purpose of the path is to confirm right view or to arrive at right view. It's not, that's the purpose. You use the right view in order to get beyond it. And John Lee has a nice thing, he says, you know, the, um, right view and wrong view are an affair of the world when you get to nirvana, nirvana has no use for right views or wrong views. He also goes on to say, it's, it's a great image, he says, you know, they build, the, they build roads for people, but dogs and cats can walk on them as well. <laughs> they didn't build them for the dogs and the cats, but dogs and cats have the right to use them. <laughs> Question. Well, basically, he's, he's hoping that the monk will realize you never, ever, ever will say that again. Okay? <laughs> it's like with a little kid, you know, you never, ever, ever put your finger in the fire, you know. And you've got to give a sense to the kid, this is really serious. But he's seeing that if, if this monk held to this wrong view, he could create a lot of problems. He'd be continuing to, you know, have wrong view himself, teaching wrong view to other people. And there are a couple of cases in the canon where these monks have wrong view, and the monks try to get them back into right view, and the monks refuse. The monk in question refuses, so they take him to the Buddha. And even talking to the Buddha, the, this, this particular monk, it happens twice to two different monks, the monk will not admit the truth of what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha comes down really, really hard on him, both for his own sake and also for the sake of all the other monks around. Right, and this is the right time to be harsh. Right, that's the strategy. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John Sweat had a nice comment one time. He says, "When you're on the path, you're doing everything you can to clear the path so you can get to the goal. When you've reached the goal, as far as you're concerned personally." Weeds could grow up in the path again. It wouldn't affect you anymore because you've reached the goal. But you look back and you see other people struggling to get along the path. 
weeds are growing, and not only that, but other people are actually putting stones and other things in the way. <laughs> and so you, you know, out of compassion for the people who want to get to the end, you have to go out and clear out the stones. There's some of the best Dharma talks we got out of Ajahn Sawat. Um, for a long time we had a, um, we didn't have a subscription, I guess you would call it, but Inquiring Mind was sent to the monastery. And when an issue of Inquiring Mind would come, and I tell Ajahn Sawat what was, it, what was an Inquiring Mind, boy did we get a rip-snort in Dharma talk that night. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite one was they, they had an issue on sex and lust and enlightenment. Do you remember that one? Where they had that bust of the woman, the naked woman, with all these, these sculptures of fingers, hands all around her like this. And the, the issue arrives, of course, it's Sunday morning, I'm sitting next to him at our meal. The issue arrives, and there's this picture on the cover. And he looks at me, you know, what kind of magazine are you getting here? And I said, this is a Dharma magazine. He said, Dharma magazine? <laughs> and we opened it up, and it was, it was all about Tibetan stuff, and you have you know, the Tibetan Buddha images, you know, the women crawling all over the Buddha. Um, and he looked at that, and he said, boy, that is obscene. Boy, did we get a Dharma talk that night. <laughs> So, yeah. so sometimes it's, you have to be harsh. <laughs> Question over here? Yes. You wanted to, I want to explore my understanding. So a fabrication can start in practice when somebody's treated a particular way and then that child says, okay, I'm going to do a course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then as the child grows, they can still do behavior that elicits that kind of response from the teacher because that's what the child You have to do it skillfully. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is, it, is a skillful way to be with um, with concentration? It's a matter of just being, and so there's not there's you know there's consciously there's not the back and forth or the and off. Well, you have to have the confidence that you are capable, and so instead of trying to replace a kind of amorphous just you know general worthlessness with an amorphous general worthiness. You try to actually develop some skills and say, at least at this area, I'm, I'm good. Right. I'm thinking that it's not even let's see whether it's bad or good, it's just doing it. Well, eventually you have to, but to do it, you have to have the confidence that it's worth your effort and worth the time to put into it. Right, but identity doesn't come from doing it. It does. It does? Yes. Okay. I mean, your, your identity, I mean, the, the kinds of becomings that you are going to create often will depend on your skills. You know, as your skills develop, things that you couldn't even think of desiring in the past because you thought this is just too unrealistic, they start coming into, into the realm of possibility. And you have to decide, these skills that I have, what would be useful, you know, a really skillful use of these skills? And this is where the wisdom comes in. And so it requires, you know, it, it's not just replacing worthlessness with worthiness, but you've got to figure out, okay, there are some areas where I have a range of skills, and then I have to think about what's the best use of these skills. And that creates a healthy sense of self, which you're going to need on the path. The Buddha talks about, you know, the healthy producer and the healthy consumer, or the healthy attitudes. The healthy producer says, other people can do this, I can do it too. That's a form of conceit, but it's useful. It's necessary on the path. It's again, it's part of the raft. And then the healthy sense of the consumer is: I started this path because I love myself. I don't want to suffer. If I were to abandon the path, that would be a sign I didn't really love myself. So I stick with the path. And again, once you've reached the end, then you don't have any need for any of these things anymore. It's like the marks that carpenters put on wood when they want to cut it, and make something. You make all these marks all over the place. And then when the job is finished, you erase the marks.
that that's not really the consideration because if he's the cleaning, that it should be more of the focus of what the suffering is. Of mm, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so is that kind of an example of being able to use like the fabricator to get to the unfabricator? Right. Mm -hmm. But at this particular point, you're asking these questions around the stress and questions which basically take those terms out of the equation. Yes. So the proliferation is that only volitional thinking, or is that just other things, thoughts that come into your head whether or not you are wanting them? Okay, you've got both. Um, you've got the thoughts that are coming in from past karma, and then there's a the question of what are you going to do with those thoughts right now? You're making choices, but am I going to run with this thinking or am I not? And sometimes the thing it just keeps getting churned up. You say, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to go there. But it keeps coming up. That's a sign there's some past karma that's got a strong push coming through. But it, the, the real question is, what am I doing with that right now? Of course, if you run with it, you really proliferate. But it's an important distinction to make when you're sitting there and the, you're trying to get the mind in concentration and there's all this other background chatter there. Sometimes it's like the, you know, the tar baby. You know, it gets you get, like the monkey. There's, there's a tar trap. The Indian, the Buddha talks about. You know, you, you get the little tar trap, and the monkey, the monkey gets the more the monkey tries to get away from the tar trap, the more it gets stuck. A lot of times, the more you try to get involved with this thinking and try to chase it away, the more it pulls you out. So you just leave it there in the background. So it's it's bubbling up, but I'm not going to go there. And then after a while, the bubbling begins to die down. If you fight against it, it doesn't. It's, it's going to have a, it's going to have an effect on you. It's going to be kind of like something like flies buzzing around. And the question is, am I going to let the fly, am I going to let the flies bother me? And you have to figure out some attitude, but no, it doesn't have to be. And John Fuhring has a great story. He was out meditating in the forest, and that one particular evening, he checked the sky, and there didn't seem to be any clouds or anything. So he figured he could pitch his, pitch his umbrella tent out in a more exposed area. And sure enough, around midnight, this huge storm blew up, wind and rain and everything. And he had to take all of his robes and everything and put them in his bowl to keep them dry. And he just had one underrobe on that he wore. And he sat there and he said his meditation topic was, the body's wet, but the mind's not wet. He just kept repeating that to himself over and over and over again until he saw, yeah, the mind is not wet. And so even though this it was an unpleasant situation, he didn't let his mind take it in. He wasn't trying to feed on it. Is that an example of skillful, intentional fabrication? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Balance, yeah. And then in that balance, there's no aversion or delusion. So is that the settling of the wind that we spoke about earlier? Settling of the Yeah, okay, when, when you reach nirvana, there's no wind. But in the meantime, to get there, you've got to blow in the right direction. And part of that direction includes... When the wind is blowing against you, you've really got to push. Right. And that push is the insertion of intentional Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just I'm I'm not here to identify with what the suffering is. That's the feeling. That's the feeling. Yeah, because we do we don't only feed on good food; we feed on whatever comes our way. Remember the image I gave last night of feeding the chickens, and then we whatever the chickens produce, we feed we eat that. They don't only produce eggs; they have other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's harder to understand why I want to 
Oh, self-righteous anger, that's probably the most attractive food out there, you know. <laughs> it's not good for you, but boy. Exactly. I've been so wrong to hear it. This, the reason I'm suffering is not because of me, it's because of those horrible people out there. You can throw all the blame on them. You're not responsible at all. There's a certain pleasure in that. So the mind wants to keep churning in there. Yeah. And part of it is just it's got this habit. Whatever comes its way, it's like a little kid. Whatever comes its way, it's just going <laughs> to... <laughs> But things like anger and things like this, there is a there is a you know perverse kind of pleasure. What I find if I go indulge in it is maybe this is what you're talking about. It still feels like it's there in the background. That's why I've got to use the breath to work through that. Yeah. So it can't just be. I don't have the skill to just drop it totally. Well, if it's already gotten into your physical system, it's going to infect you. It's going to have an influence on you. So you've got to do your best to get it out. Yeah, the, the, there may be a pain in the body, but there doesn't have to be pain in the mind. And John Mahabhu has a lot of really good discussions of this topic. There's a book called Straight from the Heart. He's teaching a woman who's dying of cancer, and he says, this is how you analyze pain so that it doesn't <laughs> come in on the mind. And, you, and what he gets down to is there's a, there's a perception that says, this is happening in the same space that I want to occupy. And so I am pained by it. This pain is happening to me. And you ask yourself, and some, sometimes a lot of these assumptions we have about pain are kind of pre-verbal, left over from childhood, like the pain is attacking me. Um, and you have to question that. Or that the pain is, my knee is pain. Well, no, is, is your knee really pain? No. The pain is there, but it's like the knee and the pain are like on different frequencies. It's like the different frequencies of radio waves going through the air right now here. You've got KBU and who knows whatever stations you also have in Portland. And if you tune, if you have a radio, you tune into the different frequencies. You either get, you know, hard rock, or you get easy listening, or classical, or you get Stephanie Potter, depending on <laughs> which one you tune into. And so you've got you've got here you've got the pain and you've got the knee at the same spot, but they're different frequencies. And your mind is also a different frequency. So if you can learn how to sort that out. And again, to get there, you first have to ask, start asking these questions. So that's, that's, that's another kind of skillful fabrication, kind of take apart these assumptions where you glom everything together. So not, it's not just saying the pain is one thing, the mind is something else. You just ask, okay, is there any place where they really are the same? And then you're just digging into that. Now that requires having some good background and concentration so you don't feel threatened by the pain. But that's how you do it. Question back there? And there comes a point, though, where you say, okay, I've done some of the crying, and it's kind of it's beginning to get self-indulgent. And you have to learn how to recognize when that point is. And in the meantime, you say, okay, I'll cry, but also at the same time, I want to breathe through some of the physical feelings that go around this. Because were, were you here for last night's talk? Yes. Okay. What you say, you say you've got those perceptions, those images that come to the mind. That's perception. That's mental fabrication. And it's, going to, it's immediately connected with the way you're going to breathe. And it's going to bring on all those physical symptoms. As you say, okay, to get beyond this, let me see if I can just breathe through this. 
And while the tears are coming down your face, I'm still going to breathe as calmly as I can to sort of get rid of that physical residue. And the Buddha's never saying that you have to stop crying or you have to stop grieving, but he says there is an alternative. And when you're ready for the alternative, it's there. If you remember, if you remember the, the analogies, that was the one of last resort. Yeah. You try all the other ones that involve wisdom and discernment and everything, and it's not working. It's okay. <laughs> and it's just kind of your determination. I'm not going to let this take over. Regardless. And there's going to be tension. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not all concentration is easeful and relaxed and. Yeah. <laughs> But again, that, that will last, the effect of that will last only for a certain amount of time. But sometimes it's what you need to clear the air. And then you can go back to some of the other techniques. It's like having you know, a, a toolkit that's full of all kinds of tools. And you've got a sledgehammer as your last resort. And you can't, you can't take the watch apart with, with your little things that just get. <laughs> Question? You might um, be getting to this anyways, but last night you said that fabric I'm not sure if you said fabrication is worse on cars mm-hmm. or if they came from, if they were fabricated from Sankara. Sankara has many levels. There's the process of fabricating, that's a Sankara, and there are the things that have been fabricated, those are also Sankaras. And so it's, 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 there's many levels going on there. So you've got the Sankaras as one of the five aggregates, but you've also got the f- process of fabrication that goes into all five aggregates. Okay, um, there are going to be several stages in dealing with the pain. And in the first stage, ignore it. I'm just going to stay here with the breath, and what the pain is going to do, that's its business. I'm not going to get involved. And then the next stage is once you've got a sense of comfort going on, then you think of the sense of comfort going, kind of going through the punctual breath sensations, going through and permeating the pain, and see if you can kind of un- dissolve it, or at least dissolve the tension around it. And then the next stage is to sort of go into it and say, okay, why is this pain still bothering me? And I've taken care of all the potential physical causes that I can have some control over. The pain is still there. What's, how am I relating to it? And that's when you start asking questions about it. So there are going to be several stages in your relationship to the pain. And sometimes if you can't get any sense out of what's going on with the pain, it's like, I'm going to ignore it. I'm not ready for it yet. I'm just going to focus on what I can <coughs> can make comfortable. Well, the question is, okay, is the pain permanent? 
Where's, where's the um, worst part of the pain right now? Can I trace it, trace it down? And as you try tracing it down, it's, you find it starts moving. And you say, okay, now the pain's scared of me. Okay. <laughs> Another question you can ask yourself, is the pain coming at me or is it going away? That one I found very effective. Because it's like you're sitting in the front of a car and you think the pain's coming at you, at you, at you. You feel bombarded by the pain. It's like you're collecting the pain. How about thinking that you're sitting in the back of the car, you know, those old station wagons with the back seat faced back? You're sitting in there and, okay, as anything, as soon as you see something coming into the range of your vision, it's already going away. Can you see the pain that way? That's different. Then the question is, you know, why am I feeding on this? The emotional pain. Well, first, first you have to see it coming and going. So this emotional pain is not 100% there all the time. It comes, and it leaves a f- sort of a physical residue. And then you notice the physical residue is, oh, I still must be sad or whatever, and then you pick it up again. Actually, the residue was just kind of the hormones that are left in your blood system. If you learn to read that, okay, there's the physical side of that emotional pain I felt five minutes ago. Actually, I'm not pained about that right now. There's a story they tell about it. Jokun Ubali, who was an old friend of John Munns from his childhood, who went on to ba- went to Bangkok and became a high-ranking monk in the hierarchy. And this woman came to him, see him, see him one time, and said, "You know, my my only son, who was in his early twenties, died just a few days ago, and I can't think of anything else but how sorry, how sad I am." I don't know what to do. He says, you're just saying this because you want other people to feel sorry for you, that's all. And she was livid. She got up and she didn't even bow. She just left. And she was angry at him for the next day. And then she realized she hadn't thought about her son for the entire 24 hours. Now, Mary, don't ever try that with your students, okay? Okay. <laughs> and so she came back and thanked him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're concentrating on the sensation of the pain and how your mind is reacting around it. At that point, that. If if you feel that you're actually getting someplace with the analysis, you keep at it. But if it finds that you're not getting anywhere at all, say so my concentration is not strong enough for this yet. I've got to back up and do more concentration. So you drop the issue, and then you go back to your breath. His concentration was, uh, I'm just going to stick with the, with the mind that is not wet. And so, literally that, the, the concentration was literally that. His awareness. Well, he started with the phrase, and then he just got to his awareness. He realized, okay, my awareness, on its own, is not wet. I can run out, and I can have a perception that connects with the wetness outside, but I'm not going to run with that perception. My breath isn't wet. Okay. We're never going to get finished with the material. Okay. Let's move on to the next section, which is proactive insight. This is going to be a little bit of a rehash of last night. First I'll give a, a slight talk. Okay, okay as, as we said last night, the Buddha actually talks about two ways of dealing with causes of suffering. Some of them are to watch it, 
watch the cause, and it just kind of withers away. And the reason the cause is, has main, maintained itself is because you've never really looked carefully at it. But if you look at it, just sort of continually you say, oh, this is really dumb. You can let go. You don't have to do much of a struggle. You don't have to do much of anything except watch. There are others, though, that will require exerting a fabrication. The word fabrication here is sankara, and it means the mind's proactive movement towards experience, to shape experience in the way it wants. Now it's going to want to shape aggregates. The aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications itself, and consciousness. And it doesn't create these things out of whole air. It's got to have potentials coming in from your past karma. The body that you have is the body you have. The things that you've done are going to be creating conditions, either opening opportunities or closing opportunities, depending on what, what you've done. But you've got a certain range of choices at any one time of what you're going to focus on and what you're going to develop into the kind of aggregates you want. Now, why do we want aggregates? It's because the mind has this need to feed. As long as you are a being, we talked about this earlier as a vicious cycle, you have desires and you have to develop an identity around that desire to, to, in order to have a sense of who's going to benefit from following this desire and who has the, the capabilities of developing that, of, of acquiring that desire. So your sense of self, self gets, for that particular desire, gets defined around those questions. Once you've got that sense of self, it needs to be fed. And so you have to keep looking for more food, and more food, and more food. And the aggregates are your ways of feeding. Again, to repeat what we said last night, take for example just eating physical food. You've got the form of the body, and you've also got the form of the food out there. You've got the feeling of hunger. And you've got the feeling of being satisfied once that hunger has been satisfied. So you're starting with the pain and you're trying to get the pleasure to feed off that. You've got perceptions which are, on the one hand, perceiving okay, what kind of foods do we have out there? What counts as food? What does not count as food? And also perceiving what kind of hunger do I have right now? And do I want, am I hungry for ice cream or am I hungry for a relationship? Or whatever. What am I hungry for right now? And then this fabrication. How do I go about fixing what's out there? Like with the relationship, you got a potential person, but mm, this person's not quite right. But let's see what we can do to, you know, <laughs> make this the person I want. Or if you're doing physical food, okay, you've got a raw egg. Now you can't eat raw eggs. So what are you going to do to fix it, get it so it's edible? That's fabrication. And then finally there's consciousness, which is your awareness of these things, noticing what's going on. And we use these activities in order to feed off the world. So we have to keep creating these activities out of whatever potentials we've got. So that's why we're engaged in this process. And look at this, you've got, instead of just dealing with things as givens, experience is a process. And it's, the mind is proactive, it's out there looking for things to feed on. That requires effort. Just simply the fact of being aware of the world takes effort. And so the calculation is, when is the effort worth it and when is it not? You know, they found there's a part of the brain that's constantly making this calculation. A potential idea for something you might do comes up and part of you will say, yes, it's worth it, or no, it's not worth it. And apparently when the brain is developing, they say, when teenagers, this is the part of the brain that lags behind everything else. Which is why teenagers have so many difficulties. They're not really good at gauging the results of something and figuring whether something's worth it or not. There's a great cartoon where this mouse is about to step into a mouse trap, and it's saying, "I can so do this." <laughs> and the caption under it is "Teenage Mouse." <laughs> So as we go through life, there's this sort of unconscious calculation that's going on, or subconscious calculations going on. Is this effort worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And we tend to be pretty bad judge, judges of whether it's worth it or not. You know, they've 
I was reading about a psychologist who was doing what they call positive psychology, i.e. the study of how people try to find happiness. And he kept finding again and again and again that people had extremely unrealistic ideas about how much happiness a particular activity was going to bring them. And he kept thinking, why are people so stupid? And then he reflected on himself. He's a mountain climber. Now, if anything's stupid, it's a mountain climber. You know? <laughs> and he realized that while he was climbing the mountain, it was miserable. Even he gets to the top, there's a disappointment. But then he got back down. Wasn't that great? You know? <laughs> so, we're pretty bad at calculating things. Even when the calculation is done for us, sometimes we don't see it. You know, the signs they have if you're... I drive to Zion National Park from where I am, and it requires that we drive through Las Vegas. And, and, and the signs on the road going to Las Vegas are much more interesting than Las Vegas itself. Um, my absolute favorite one was Las Vegas. Seven deadly sins, one convenient location. You know? <laughs> but the other one I had in mind is when they say, 95% payback rate. And they're telling you up front, they, you give them a dollar, they'll give you back 95 cents. You know? And it's still people from Los Angeles drive up every weekend. You know? So this is this is our problem. We have very bad you know, ways of calculating what's worth it and what's not. And insight is basically learning how to judge better what's worth it and what's not. This is why insight is not a matter of being non-judgmental or having no preferences. You have to decide what kind of pleasure is worth it, what kind of pleasure is not. And sometimes some pleasures will be short-term, but they'll have long-term pain. Is it worth it? No. And it requires discernment to realize, okay, I am not going to go there. Other things, there may be a little bit of pain in the process, but it's going to give you long-term pleasure at the end. Again, there's the discernment, a pragmatic discernment of learning how to talk yourself into going for the long-term pleasure in spite of the immediate pain. Okay. So we're dealing in an experience, we're dealing with processes, we're not dealing with completed things. It requires an effort. And there's always a sense of this has to be for the sake of something. There's always a motivation behind it. And we feed off of this. Now, to get beyond this, one, we have to see that ultimately it's not worth it. We want to get out. But before you get out, you can't just say, I'm just going to drop it and not take on anything because I, I see you know, the, the futility of the world or the you know, things are impermanent, stressful, not self, so I'll just stop. It's like saying, you know, as I said last night, food is impermanent, so I'm not going to eat anymore. As long as you're still hungry, you need to feed one. So you have to have a path of practice that's going to allow you to feed properly, which is what right concentration is all about. And secondly, in order to understand the process of fabrication, you have to learn how to do it skillfully. Thirdly, because the causes of suffering are types of fabrication themselves, you have to use other fabrications to analyze them. So this is what the Buddha is talking about when he said you have to exert a fabrication. You're passing a judgment that this is a better kind of fabrication than that fabrication, because it's going to get better results. And so you put your energy there. Um, but it's, and oftentimes it's like learning a, a foreign language as you get older. It just gets harder and harder and harder. But you realize, okay, if, I w if I'm going to master this, I've got to do this regardless. So you, you really have to motivate yourself. <coughs> Any questions on that much so far? Yes. But this also means that since the path is a path of fabrication, you're going to be creating an identity, then you have a new world, the world of the meditator. And there has to be desire at the core of that. So this is where desire comes in as a useful thing, and this is why part of right effort is generating the right desire. In other words, to learn how to make yourself want to do it. 
not just say, well, I have to do it. I have to do this, but you learn it. You want to talk yourself into enjoying it. And this can, require, this can be involved in using heedfulness, realizing, okay, if I don't master this now, it's, it's going to be trouble down the line. You can use compassion. You know, when you see old people, you know, in, in old folks' homes are kind of lost and everything, you say, gee, I hope I'm never there. And so if you ask compassion on yourself later in life, I better do this now. Um, there can be a sense of shame here. I've met this wonderful teaching and I just kind of tossed it off. As you develop a sense of accomplishment in the path, and the Buddha tells Rahula, and when you realize you've done something skillful, take joy in the fact and continue and take, continue practicing. So there's a sense of self-esteem that comes not from the fact that your teacher put gold stars all over your test paper, but the fact you actually saw, I did something skillful. And you're allowed to congratulate yourself on that. Helps you motivate, helps motivate you, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, let's see what's next here. So sometimes we're told that you know, we suffer because we think, see that things have a permanent essence. Buddha says, no, we, we suffer because we cling to things. We, the reason we cling to things is because we feel like we'll get pleasure out of them. And this is why we cling to the aggregates. So simply seeing that something is empty is not going to cut it. You have to say, okay, where am I getting the pleasure and is it worth it? And this is why you have to understand clinging. What are you clinging to in this, this whole process of aggregates? One is you're clinging to the potentials that will lead, that you can create aggregates out of. Two, you're clinging to the act of actualizing them, the fabrication process that you're doing right now. And then you also cling to the results that you anticipate. Those are the three things you're holding on to. Potentials coming up, the, actual, the activity of shaping them, and then your motivation for shaping them, what you anticipate that you're going to get out of this. Now notice you're not actually you're not clinging so much to the actualized things themselves, because you know they they come and then they are they're not quite as satisfactory because you're moving on to the next and moving on to the next, all the time. This is why when you buy something, it doesn't provide you with all the thrills and everything that you know the advertisements promise. There's that great Onion article that says you know housewife discovers that new 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 mop does not make her life more fulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> There was that brief moment <laughs> when it's like, this is, this is what I need. <laughs> and then you get it, and you're done with that, and you move on. And the mind is totally insatiable for all this. We're really into the process. But this is where we have to stop and look at it. Let's see what else? One of the points I wanted to make that I haven't already made. Sometimes I get away from my notes. Okay, and so to do fabrication, which is the path, and to make it the path, you have to start with discernment. This is why right view comes first. And it's interesting when the Buddha talks about where does discernment come from, he says it comes from going, asking someone who is wise, 
What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term harm and suffering? What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? That's, that question is the beginning of wisdom. And why is it so? Because one, and you realize that your happiness and your suffering come from your actions. You're not going to place the responsibility on somebody else. And then two, you want long-term and not short-term. There's that Dhammapada verse where the, it says, you know, if you see that a greater pleasure can be gained by sacrificing a lesser pleasure, the wise person is willing to sacrifice the lesser, lesser pleasure for the sake of the greater one. There was a British um, Buddhologist who translated that. He said, this could not possibly mean the, be the meaning of what this verse is. There must be something else, because this is just so obvious. Well, of course it's obvious, but it's not how we live our lives. We have to keep reminding ourselves, okay, we can't just go for the short term. There was a, when I was a young monk, I was having to take the, the Dharma exams, and one of the Dharma exams was they would give you a statement of the Buddha, and then for the first year Dharma exam, you had to give a, write a little Dharma talk based on that statement, and then bring in one more statement of the Buddha to illustrate your point, and then come to a conclusion. And then the second year I had to bring in two statements, and third year I had to bring in three. And they have this little book of Buddhist sayings that you had to memorize. And I noticed all the little novices who were also taking the exams, they could memorize just page after page after page of these things. And you know, having been one brought up in the American you know, educational system, we didn't do that much memorization when I was a kid. And secondly, you know, I was getting a little bit old, and thirdly, this was not my native language. So I figured, okay, what, what I've got to do is figure out there must be one or two or three statements that can be used in any situation. <laughs> I will memorize those. <laughs> and the one that I settled on for you know, the, all three years was, if, if you see that there is a greater pleasure to be found from like, getting rid of the lesser pleasure, go for the greater pleasure. Sacrifice the lesser, lesser one. I passed all three exams. <laughs> so... So you start with that question, then you take on certain assumptions. One is the assumption that you're, as I said, bright, mundane right view, which is that your actions really do have consequences. The Buddha never was able to prove that to you. He's never able to prove rebirth to you, but he says, take it on as a working hypothesis. He doesn't quite use those terms, but that's what he means. It will be confirmed for you at the end of the path, but it's also what makes the path possible. You take down that assumption. Um, thirdly, there's what he calls the di discernment in your right effort. I mentioned this just now. He basically, he said there are four kinds of actions in the world. There are the things that you like to do and give good results, things you like to do but give bad results, things you don't like to do that give bad results, and the things that you don't like to do but give good results. Now, as for the things that you like to do and give good results and that you don't like to do and give bad results, those are no-brainers. You don't have to struggle much. The tr difficult ones are the ones, things you like to do to give bad results, things you don't like to give good results. That's where you've got to use your discernment to psych yourself out so that you actually accomplish this and go for the long-term results and not for the liking or disliking. And then as you're working on this, you, de you develop three activities. There's generosity, virtue, and meditation. The analogy of the, the chickens we had last night, you're feeding the chickens in hopes that they're going to give you the eggs. Well, you finally get chickens that give good eggs, and they don't peck your eyes out. These are not the chickens from hell. These are good chickens. You know, okay? And then you, based on that, in meditation here, when the Buddha is talking about meditation in this in this context, he's talking about developing goodwill. Goodwill for yourself, goodwill for all beings. This is your part of your motivation for practicing. And then you develop your discernment even further by practicing concentration. And the Buddha talks about this in two ways. One is that even prior to teaching his son breath meditation, the Buddha taught him the teachings of compact. Contemplation of the body, contemplation of not-self. The things that we talk about as wisdom practices. He, he had Rahula 
think about these things before I meditated as ways of using wisdom to get the mind ready to concentrate. So that when thoughts come up about central pleasures that you're missing, you say, oh no, that's, I don't need that. So use your wisdom. Again, it's a value judgment. You're saying these things are not worth it. The concentration is more worth it. You also develop discernment in your concentration. We talked about this a little bit before in the process of evaluating the object and evaluating the mind as you're trying to get it to settle down. To see what works and what doesn't work. How you can get things to come together. What parts of the mind, what activities in the mind do you have to just let go? Which ones do you encourage? And then in the body, okay, which, which aspects of the body are you going to focus on? Which ones are you going to ignore for the time being? That's a process of developing your discernment. What can I do to get the mind to settle down? And again, it's a value judgment. So again, we're not getting to a non-judgmental path. It's a path that's actually trying to refine your powers of judgment. Once you've got the concentration, then the pleasure and rapture that come from the concentration give you a point of comparison. So, okay, this pleasure is actually better than a lot of the other pleasures I've had before. And when you can see, okay, this is better, that's when you are going to be more enthusiastic and developing and working on it. It's going to make it that much easier to let go of things that you know are unskillful. The Buddha said you can know all you want about how the drawbacks of sensuality are, but unless you have a pleasure that comes from concentration or a higher level, you're not going to be able to let go. Because you need that alternative pleasure. One is a point of comparison. Do it just to give yourself something to feed on. And as you get more and more hands-on experience through the process of fabricating the states of concentration, you get more hands-on experience with fabrication in general, how your mind shapes things. And you begin to use that insight and apply it to other things that are coming up. And when you find your mind slipping back to its old ways, you ask yourself, well, why am I going back? What, what am I nibbling on now that I'm not admitting to myself? So by seeing the fact that okay, I'm, you're shaping this experience of concentration, this is how you shape it, then you begin to realize, I'm shaping my other emotions in the same way. Except that they're a lot sloppier. I've got to figure out why, you know, why do I still go back to those old ways? Partly because it's easier and you're more used to it. It's like having an old shoe. That, you know, the, the old shoe is all crumpled and everything, but it fits. You know? Even though it's pinching your foot, you're used to it. You know? So, and the analysis that you use, which I mentioned briefly last night, was to see when something is unskillful, to get past it, first you have to see when it arises, what's causing it, what's coming at the same time. You know, when thoughts of revenge come up, you know, why do you go with them? When thoughts of being wronged come up, why do you run with them? What actually comes up in the mind at the same time that it comes up? When it goes away, how does it go away? Second step. Third step is to look for the allure. Why do I like that? Whatever that little bit of flavor, or that little bit of like that New Yorker cartoon, a couple of witches are sitting around in a big cauldron and one of them is tasting it. It's too sweet. You put in too much revenge. You know? <laughs> Why is it sweet? You know? And when you begin to see, this is pretty miserable. Okay, that's when you develop the passion for especially when you compare the allure with the drawbacks. And so if I go for this, There'll be this little bit of hit of pleasure right now, but there's going to be trouble down the line. Or sometimes I'm actually causing myself stress right now, and I'm ignoring it. And then you see, then that you develop the dispassion that is the escape. And the ultimate escape, as I said, is a state of mind that doesn't need to feed anymore. That's how you can learn how to stop feeding and stop clinging. Not by just telling yourself not to feed, not to cling, but basically saying, I don't need to anymore. I've got something better. Again, value judgment. So those are the thoughts I wanted to talk about. Anything before we look at some of the passages? Revenge. 
But it's a useful fabrication. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to, it's not like saying, well, I'm just not going to have any desires, I'm not going to have any, I'm not going to be a bad person anymore. You've got to give yourself an alternative. And as, as part of the strategy and the path, you've got to create a new Mary. Now, sometimes you'll be specifically thinking about it, I'm going to be a new person, I'm not going to be the same person I was before. In other cases, you don't even have to think about Mary at all. Just realizing, oh, this is pretty bad food. I prefer this food over here. Well, if I'm going to get this food over here, I have to become a different person with a different range of skills. Or even, you don't have to think about, I'm going to become a different person. I need extra skills. I have to learn how to fabricate in new ways. So that, that's in dealing with, I stop thinking about, I need to be this, but I feel this, mm-hmm. and so I'll counterbalance this with this other feeling. Mm-hmm. And that itself dissipates. At the very least, it gives you an alternative to step away from the from the original original. And you have a new new place to step. And you're going to stop feeding on the revenge only when you got better food. Force of habit. Mm-hmm. You've got to learn how to make being centered with your breath your default position, so it becomes your new habit. And so you realize, I've been knocked off of that, I've got to get back, if I'm going to be safe. Was right, just telling yourself, I'm going to be equanimous, I'm not going to make value judgments, I'm not going to be reactive, and whatever, whatever. doesn't cut it. Yes. One of the first things you've got to realize is that when someone insults you, it's really more about them than it is about you. And sometimes that's 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 cold turkey, <laughs> because you say, "Well, uh, that tells me a lot about that. I don't want to know about them." <laughs> I mean, first you ask yourself, to, to what extent is the insult true? 
And maybe there's a grain of truth in there that you've got to admit, you know, maybe I was careless or thoughtless or whatever. But then the, the, added, the added sting was not necessary. And that's telling you more about you know, what that person is thinking about you. He's, oh, this is, this is that person's attitude toward me. I didn't realize this. So at least, at least that's good knowledge now. I don't have to assume that this person is exalting me to the skies. And as you know, for whatever else, okay, that's that person's karma. It's your karma only when you start taking it out and feeding it. And this is why you can also think about a John Lee's analogy. He says when when someone insults you, it's like they're spitting their words out on the ground, and you bend over and you pick it up and you eat it. And he says, "Who's stupid?" <laughs> You're trying to come to you're trying to come to closure on this issue, and we have to remember that you know, life is not a novel that comes to a closure. There are going to be a lot of loose ends of straying around. Now, if you want to continue having a, an ongoing relationship with that person, there you do have to make an effort at reconciliation. And the question is, how can we sit down and have a re reconciliation over this? But also realize that there are certain things in the life that are just going to be loose ends. You just got to leave them hanging. Because you control go around trying to tie up everything. You're going to die first. So that gets back to how do we let go of Right. And part of it is, you know, you'd like to leave the world with everybody liking you. And then part of you says, well, maybe I don't need that. And being with the John Fung is really interesting. One, on the one case, he was not a famous teacher in Thailand. And two, the local people for a long time did not like him there. They wanted a little village monastery where they could rule the monks. And here they got this forest monk who was not letting them you know, run the place. And there's a lot of gossip and a lot of you know, malicious stuff going around. He said, well, at least, you know, when, when people don't like you, one, if you're going to go someplace, you don't have to ask their permission first. <laughs> and when you come back, you don't have to bring them presents. <laughs> and so I, I got to see, see him under fire like that and say, oh, this is how you handle that. And he said, if you go around trying to clean up everybody's attitude towards you, you never come to the end. You'll die before you... So if you're thinking, okay, what the person said, there was a grain of truth in there, take the grain of truth to heart and say, I'm, I want to I correct myself on that. As for whatever else is there, just let it go. Exactly, yeah. Because in, in, the, in the earlier one, there's still a you in there doing these actions. And in the next one, you're dropping the you and just looking, where's the, where's the stress? But still there's a sense of these different duties that have to be done. And then finally, in the end, it's just the one duty. So that the, whatever the, the types of becoming that develop around the path just get more and more and more and more narrowed down. 